thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Continuing our study then of the book of Revelation, and today we are going to go through chapter 18. It's uh, again one of those uh, fairly rich chapters. Um, please follow with me in your Bibles. Before we read this chapter, let's remember what we've seen last week. Last week we've seen the introduction to the judgment of the harlot. We've seen the harlot seat, seated on the beast, and we studied who the harlot was. We came to an understanding that the internal clues of the text of Scripture itself leads us to understand that the harlot is Jerusalem. The reason why this is important for us is not so much that it is Jerusalem versus Rome. At the end of the day, why do we care? I mean, this has happened 2,000 years ago. It's old history, and it has nothing to do with the price of oil today, right? But what, so why, why would we care that it was Jerusalem versus Rome? We care primarily because it colors our understanding of the book of Revelation. If you go with a Rome interpretation, you're looking at a political understanding. You're looking at a political power. You're looking at a politi- political play. Most of the Jewish apocalyptics written around the time were political in nature. They were targeting Rome because Rome was the political oppressor. And there is a tendency to categorize the apocalypse as being part of them. And I think when we do that, the problem we run into is that it reduces or it has the tendency or the danger of reducing our faith to politics. Because at the end of the day, what we have to ask ourselves is... How is that of concern to me today? Why is the book of Revelation important to me today? What does it teach me? What does it tell me? And what is God, what is God revealing to us in this book? That's what really matters. What happened in the past is not really of a concern to us. We can't change it. And what's going to happen at the end of times is a little bit outside of our grasp also. We don't have much control over it. So instead of worrying about things we don't have much control over, we really want to focus on things we do have control over, which is today. But in order to do that properly, we have to understand the text in its appropriate context. That's why it is important for us to realize that without the covenant, 
without the liturgy, the book of Revelation has very little import. It becomes a political tract. Rome was the power du jour. They were bad, like any other power was bad, and like any other power will be bad, because my kingdom is not of this world, the Lord said. So let's not expect any earthly kingdom to act like it's heaven. It's not going to happen. There were many other kingdoms that came after it, and there will be many more that will come after this one. What, is that going to t- what does it tell us beyond what we know already from history, from politics, from psychology, from sociology, from all the human sciences that have studied these things repeatedly? Do we really need a book to tell us that people can be evil or people can be good? And that uh, when you have a big country like the United States, a lot of people are here because they really ma- want to make a lot of money and that skews their, their judgment and there is corruption here and elsewhere. Do we really need the book of Revelation to tell us any of that? We don't, right? We don't, even need, we don't need this. We know that. We know it all too well. But the startling thing that we tend to miss over and over again is the fact that God governs this world in a very intimate and direct way, not like a clockmaker who made the clock and let it run and comes and checks on it once every 2,000 years to make sure we didn't screw up too badly. No, he is governing the world very intimately. And then the question is, how? How does he govern the world? And the answer is the liturgy. See, that is a startling fact. That is something we can do something with. If we understood in a profound way that through the liturgy, God is making history, suddenly we are empowered to do something about our world and to do it the right way. Suddenly we understand what he meant when he said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and everything else will be given unto, unto ye. We understand better when he prays, we teach us to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, thy will be done. How is God's will be done? How is it being done? Through the liturgy. We are part of that will. And that's the other important intuition, important revelation. The world is as good as the way Catholics celebrate the liturgy. The world is a reflection, is a mirror of the way we are celebrating the liturgy. And that is a problem for us because suddenly we are responsible in one way or the other, of the well-being of the world. Well, what did Jesus come to do here? He came to save the world, not to condemn it. How does He do that? Mass. Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. You have no life in you. People out there, you don't have life in you. 
See, those two statements, you have no life in you, and the world is a reflection of the way we celebrate the liturgy, have the same tone to them. They annoy us somehow. Because we would really want these people out there to have life in them. You know why? Because if they have life in them, we don't have to do anything. We're off the hook. We can now just worry and busy ourselves with ourselves. Like everybody else. Realize, and that's the moral reading, that we are always on the cusp, on the verge of being pagan. We're always like that. St. Therese Lisieux said, between us and, the, and God is a difference like the difference between zero and infinity. And the best among us has not left the rim of the zero. What she meant by that is that all of us are always tempted to be pagan. Put differently, all of us would like to be teenagers forever. What is a teenager? By definition. Why did we coin this word instead of calling them youth? which was the word used before. They're pagans. But what is a pagan? That's exactly what they are. Right? And the reason is because of contraception and a bunch of other things. But the bottom line, that's what a teenager is instead of a youth. Youth were what? Young. But it didn't take away from responsibility. It didn't take away from charity, from love, from the capacity to do something. They were, they were young, that's all. Youth and old. There's nothing to it. But teenagers, now that's a different breed. They're a bona fide pagan. And many of us who are older go through what these days? Midlife. What is midlife crisis? No, to be pagan. Nothing to do with being young. I can't be young. I'm not going to be 16 again, but the idea is, are you, are you going to be a pagan yet? Now you can be. You're allowed. Psychology gives you the stamp to be a pagan for a little while. Do you understand? It's part of our fa- f- fallen nature that we have those temptations constantly. What's, what's going to overcome all this? What is going to make us shine like the sun? What? The liturgy. Did you understand why the church says the liturgy is the source and summit of the life of the church? The source and summit. It's the source because this is what feeds us. It's the summit because it's a climb. You climb up to love the liturgy. It's a dedicated work of a lifetime. And you know what? We Catholics have checked out. We've checked out. We don't dedicate our lives to love the liturgy. It is not our priority number one. Not even a priority number ten. Sometimes not even a priority. That is the blindness that has hit 
this generation. We're not in a desert, we're worse. The, the Jews were in a desert, they knew they were in a desert. We're worse. We are in our home, and we act like it's a desert. We have the fountain of life, and we don't ask for anything. We don't know how to. I'm not just saying we as we, this little group sitting here. I'm talking we as Catholics. Okay? So what the book of Revelation is showing us, time and time again, is that it starts with us. The third millennium, the evangelization of the world, starts with us. So it is fundamentally a message of hope because we have a tool that is guaranteed by God not to stop, ever. The church is founded on Peter and the church will never leave this world. It's guaranteed by God. And that tool is made available to us so that here, where we live, without having to make a huge effort, go to Africa or anywhere else, I nothing against going to Africa and helping poor, don't get me wrong, but without even having to go any of this, just by devoting ourselves to the love of the church and the love of the liturgy and coming to Mass, thinking throughout our week to prepare ourselves. Preparing our, our week is a preparation for the liturgy and it's a thank, thanksgiving of the liturgy. Just having that mindset is a Herculean battle. Trust me. It might take somebody three years to get there. Trying week after week after week. This is how hard it is for us. But just having that mindset... And really living Mass devoutly, reverently, and loving God through the Mass, and taking Mass back to us in our home and in our work, that changes the world. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. It's not, about a, book, it's not a book of doom and gloom. It's not, about a, it's not a book about the end of the world and how God is going to just destroy everything. It is about the beginning and beginning again of the church. It is the confirmation that the church will remain till the end of the ages, and then the church governs the world. That's what it is about. And we have the means, and the hope, and the charity, and the love to transform this world. That's what it is about. That's the abiding peace we have in our hearts. That is the strength we have to go on and do it so joyfully. This is the foundation of our faith. That's who we are. Do you understand what I'm saying or is it just you know, going over your head? This is so important. It's so important for us to really be alive in the church. Do you really understand that you have to have a love for the liturgy? Love like you fall in love. You're passionately in love with the Mass. That if you could be at Mass all through your day, you wouldn't mind. None of us is there. Don't get me wrong. I mean, very few of us are there. Maybe St. Uh, what's his name? Uh, that youth who died. Uh, uh, St. Um, Don Bosco. Uh, Dominic Savio. Well, that would be one of them, right? Okay. 
But, but, but beyond that, all of us have to work at it. That, that's, that's so important. And again, this chapter, once you take that outlook, you understand, you get the, the, the clues, and you, you really see it for what it is. Not a political attack on Rome to tell us how Rome is depraved and decadent, which we really didn't need this book to know that. We don't need a book of Revelation to tell us how Rome was because we have Rome today. We have Rome with us all the way through. But to make us understand the importance of the liturgy and how effective we can transform the world just by our prayer. That is a revolution. That changes the world. Verse 1, chapter 18. After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his splendor. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. It has become a dwelling place of demons, a haunt of every foul spirit, a haunt of every foul and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk the wine of her impure passion, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich with the wealth of her wantonness. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her as she herself has rendered, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double draught for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and played the wanton, give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, A queen I sit, I am no widow, mourning I shall never see. So shall her plagues come in a single day. Pestilence and mourning and famine, and she shall be burned with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. And the kings of the earth who committed fornication and were wanton with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, thou great city, thou mighty city Babylon, in one hour has thy judgment come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo any more. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet, all kinds of scented wood, all articles of ivory, all articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which thy soul longed has gone from thee, and all thy dainties and thy splendor are lost to thee, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, bedecked with gold, with jewels, and with pearls. In one hour all this wealth has been laid waste, and all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all those who trade in, on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city what was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city, where, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. In one hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, O saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. 
And a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So shall Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and shall be found no more. And the sound of harpers and minstrels, the flute players and trumpeteers shall be heard in thee no more. And a craftsman of any craft shall be found in thee no more. And the sound of the millstone shall be heard in thee no more. And the light of a lamp shall shine in thee no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride shall be heard in thee no more. For thy merchants were the great men of the earth, and all nations were deceived by thy sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints, and of all who have been slain on earth. Very rich imagery. Let's try and make sense of this. First recall that in chapter 17, there was a promise made by an angel to show St. John the judgment of the great whore sitting on many waters. Now that judgment is being accomplished here. In chapter 17, there was a pause while we, we had a description of that harlot and of the beast and of all the other attendant elements that would help us understand who she is. In this chapter, we see this judgment. Now, do we? Really, do we? First note. In <clears throat> verse 2, the angel is calling with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Notice the past tense. The angel is not saying, Babylon the great is about to fall. Or, let Babylon the great fall. He's announcing an event that had taken place in the past. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Why is that? Why announce a future event as if it has already happened? It's, it's, it's something that many commentators stumble upon, and they really don't know what to do with it. The reason is precisely because of the liturgy, which We've seen this pattern repeat itself many times. When we pray to God and ask for something, interceding for someone, that prayer may be already answered in heaven, but its full realization on earth is going to take time. But it's already sealed in heaven. Do you understand? So there's this... The liturgy, we said already, is heaven on earth. It is the place where we meet the royal throne of God. We are entering into His royal hall, and God is seated on His throne with, um, with all the angels and all the saints, and the court is open. We go to God, we praise Him, we glorify Him, we tell Him we are His children. We come to Him in a state of grace so that we may be received by Him and as he hears our prayers of uh, uh, glory, and then our petition, God answers back. And the one way in which he answers back is by feeding us, so that he can transform our nature from human into divine, so that one day we may be truly and fully his sons and daughters in heaven. The other way is that he takes care of our material needs. He will answer those prayers. And the answer is in heaven first, and then 
it comes to be physically manifested on earth. Do you understand how this economy works? This is important. Because if you understand that, you will have a much more realistic expectation about the way God talks to us. Your prayer may already be answered. The answer is yes, but not yet. Or yes, not now. Part of it is because God wants us to grow in faith, hope, and charity. Part of it is because there are other elements that need to be in place before its physical manifestation takes place. Okay? So, that's why you see this um, element here where the angel is already declaring something that has happened as a response to the prayers of praise and petition of the saints in this heavenly liturgy that we see throughout the book. All the way back to the beginning of the book where the souls of the martyrs were asking God, how long will you wait before you avenge our blood? Throughout the prayers of the saints and the angels across the book where they glorify God and praise Him, all of this liturgy that has been ongoing from the very beginning and continues now is this constant dialogue between God and us. The reason why this has happened is given in verse 3. All nations have drunk the wine of her pure, impure passion and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. Now, what is important for us to understand is that this is set in a covenantal framework. When you hear the word cup, think liturgy, not party. They drank the cup of her fornication. That is an anti-liturgy. In other words, they are committing idolatry. They are saying it's okay for us to um, compromise the covenant for wealth, for money, for something that is good for us. That's what is going on here. That's why she's being punished. Okay, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you more uh, details a little bit later. I'm just going to go quickly through and come back and, and highlight specific details. In verse 4, another angel now calls God's people, and it says, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. So, two things. You need to come out of her so that you do not sin. Therefore, it is tempting to be in her. Always remember that. It is tempting. And the second, so that you may not share her plagues. Why? Because you would have committed that sin. The coming out is reminiscent of what? Lot, who had to come out of Sodom, and you'll recall that even though his wife had come out physically from Sodom, she was still in there, because that's where she wanted to live, right? It is reminiscent of Israel coming out of Egypt into the desert. It is also reminiscent of the Christians who left Jerusalem 
to a little town of Pella up in Galilee right before the Roman army came and laid siege to the city. There is, at times, a physical coming out. You leave the place. But at all times, there is a moral coming out. There is a theological coming out. Meaning what? Meaning that we are not to create ghettos. We are not just to leave San Diego and go live in some small town up there. Right? Why? Because you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So you have to be able to shed light and you have to be able to give taste. That means you have light and you have taste. And that means that you're going to live a moral life and a theological, theologically appropriate life. And there are some decisions which are hard to do, but you're going to have to do them. Otherwise, you're not coming out of her. You're part of her. So, um, one thing I decided to do recently is that I will not go to Starbucks anymore. Starbucks is... Uh, is a very big promoter of a number of causes which are against the Catholic Church. Starbucks has given money to 35 charities. Not one of them is Christian. I will not go to Starbucks anymore. It is not consistent with my belief in the Catholic Church. This is not something that is beyond my control. I am not talking about an insurance company who invests in some mutual fund. Part of it may have some, you know, companies in China where this is remote responsibility. I have nothing to do with it. This is direct responsibility. I don't need coffee to live. I don't need it, really. And every time I go and I spend money at Starbucks, I am promoting these activities. Monetarily. Now it's hard. It's hard. But that's what we're talking about. We're talking about control of television. We're talking about what you watch and what you don't watch. The way what you what you the clothes you put on and the clothes you don't put on. The 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 control of your eyes and on and on and on and on. That is coming out of yet living still in the world. Be in the world, not of the world. Right? And there are times where you really physically have to come out. Okay. Um, For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. That's an uh, an idiom. Her her sins are heaped high as heaven. It's literally almost, they're, they're attached to heaven. Meaning that her sins have reached a level that... Well, there there are two things implied here. Number one is that her iniquity is very great. And number two, it is irreversible. Cannot be changed. It's not going to be healed. Okay? There is such things as irreversible um, behavior. Right? We call it, um, 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 you know, obdurate sin. When somebody fall into obduracy. Well, he will not change, no matter what. He's set. Salvation cannot reach that person anymore. So, there is such thing as as that, and that's what we're facing here, in this specific instance. 
and render to her as she herself has rendered and repay her double for her deeds, makes a double draught for her in the cup she makes. This simply means that the Talionic law, right, the law of eye for eye and tooth for tooth is going to be applied. In other words, God is just, and just as she has behaved, God is going to requite her for her behavior. His justice is going to apply. His justice is going to apply. Okay? And how and, and typically, how does God punish us or those who commit a sin? By that very same sin. By that very same sin. Okay, so those who are pride, who are proud, I'm sorry, those who are proud would be humiliated. In more ways than one. Those who um, gossip okay, will suffer by their tongue. Those who cannot control their eyes, etc., etc. Right? So, oftentimes, one thing we do not do in this society at all is link disease to sin. We think there's no connection whatsoever. Again, our wonderful pagan way of taking God out of our lives. God is in the church and God is in our prayers, but nothing to do with disease and sin. There's no connection there. Right. The nature of the covenant and the way God punishes links the two. In many cases, okay, it's not complicated. When he says, the one who kills by the sword, by the sword he shall be killed. We think, oh, that means if I kill by a gun, I'm going to be fine. I didn't use a sword, now did I? Right? Or I, I killed somebody by, by an overdose of chocolate. I didn't use a sword. What he meant to say is this pattern. Right? Because it's triggered by the covenant. Whatever you do to the other... God will do unto you, right? Show mercy, and God will show mercy. We, we all agree with that. I mean, why would God show mercy to somebody who doesn't want to show mercy? Right? Be merciful, and God will be merciful. Right? Etc., etc. This is a law that applies. So, when we are sinful, eventually, <coughs> one of the fruits of sin is disease. Yeah. Ultimately, death. Well, penultimately, ultimately hell. You know, why do we always act surprised when we're faced with the fundamental tenets of our faith? There's such thing as hell, heaven, right? There's judgment. And we're going to be held accountable for our action. Why are we always surprised by that? So really interesting. Why? Well, because, again, we are always at the border of wanting to be pagan. So we don't like to hear those notes. But that's the reality of it. That's the reality of it. Okay. Um, her plague will come in a single day. That doesn't mean in a 24-hour period. It means suddenly. Okay? Suddenly. That's what it means. Um, pestilence, mourning, and famine... Pestilence, mourning, and famine, and she shall be burned with fire. So pestilence, fire, and, uh, and famine are part of the uh, 
curses that God will trigger within the covenant. Right? So this is a covenantal judgment that is coming upon her. And, and so you need to understand something here. If there is a Chinese out there, or a Japanese, or a Lebanese, or whomever it is, some guy who's never been Catholic, who's never entered into a covenant with God, who has not heard of God and his church and the covenant, and he's leading a wild life, okay? and you have another guy who is a Catholic, and he's leading a wild life. Of these two, who should be punished? Why? Why the Catholic? It's not about knowing. Because he's part of the covenant. The covenant has nothing to do with know or don't know. You sign on that paper, and you said, God, I'll do everything you say, and I'm signing by your name. I'm saying, you, God, will make me do all that. You're going to give me the strength to do it. I've engaged your honor, your glory, your name. And now, I'm going to go and flaunt your honor, your glory, and your name. Do you understand? Curses, blessings. Get it? Okay. That's why it absolutely makes no sense to point to Rome. When did Rome enter into a covenant with God? Why should we accuse Rome? Jerusalem, on the other hand, now that's another story, right? Catholics, on the other hand, that's another story. Get it? To whom much is given, much is required. Now we think, optimistic as we are, much is required as in positive. Right? So I gave you 100 bucks, I'm expecting 400. Positive. That's how we look at it. Right? That's not what it means. To whom much is given, much is required morally in the way they behave. Because the reason why they were much given was because of the trust that God had in them. That's why. So the more God gives someone, the higher the moral expectation of the life of that person. That's what's important. Now, from verse 9 through uh, verse 19, you see a number of people who are lamenting. Right? So, you have the kings of the earth who are lamenting her fall. That's from verse 9 to 10. They are, then the merchants are lamenting her fall from 11 to 17. The mariners are lamenting her fall from 17 to 19. You had those three people who are lamenting her, right? The, the kings, the, the merchants, and the mariners. Before that, from verse 1 to 8, we're told about the coming judgment and of the, the need to leave Babylon. And finally... After those lamentations, we're told to rejoice over her and to give glory to God. You follow me? This is the whole structure of this chapter. First, judgment is coming, get out. Second, the kings, the merchants, the mariners are all going to lament her. Third, rejoice over her. Rejoice over the fact that 
she, her, her judgment has come. Why all this repetition, you think? Why say, tell, it, tell us in five different ways one thing? You know why? Now, it's one of those lofty, mysterious reasons summarized like this. Eat what's on your plate. If you eat what's on your plate, you can have ice cream. If you don't eat what's on your plate, you're not going to get up from here. Eat what's on your plate. You get it? We need repetition. Not only little ones, we too need repetition. So there is this sort of uh, antiphonic um, movement going on here where, where, where you have God telling us this judgment is coming. It is decreed. It has already happened in the heavenly liturgy. Now, practically speaking, you dissociate yourself from it, from her. Question. When God says, detach from himself, get out of her, is she burning in fire? No. She looks great. Commerce is already going on. Everything is cool. And God's saying, detach yourself. You understand the reality of it? God is not telling us, all right, I'm going to bomb this place with a couple of atomic bombs and I want you to detach yourself from it. He's not going to need to do that, does he? We'll be out of there before he even says anything else, wouldn't he? But that's not how he operates. First, you see the importance of the liturgy? If we're not liturgically attuned, if we do not love the liturgy, our faith is going to falter. Because God is saying, it's done. Really? Really? The place is still here. Uh, what's done, Lord? If you don't have your eyes and your soul open to the liturgy and believe in the realities, the hidden realities of heaven, you're really going to have a hard time believing when God says it's done. It's decreed. But that's what He says first. And He tells us, Here's your moral imperative. You have to live this way. Or else you will share with the same thing. You'll be part of her. Notice there's no middle ground. There isn't those of you who are part of Babylon to the right. And those of you who are to the left. And those of you who are not part of Babylon to the right. And those of you who are not yet decided, sit in the middle, have a committee or two, think about it, vote, and then we'll negotiate. You're here or you're there. That's it. And how do you know? Your moral conduct. Not what you say. It's what you do. That's where the rubber meets the road. It's what you do. One thing I will tell you about the, the, um, this list. Let me talk about this list now. Um... Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, scarlet. Gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, scarlet. Can, and, and, and all kinds of scented wood, articles of ivory, 
costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble. Can you name one place where all these things are used? The Jerusalem temple. Exactly. This is liturgy. Okay? Cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense. Does it ring a bell, the myrrh and the frankincense? Remember those guys who showed up early on in the story? What did they do? The three magis. What did they do? What did they offer the child Jesus? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Why did they offer him gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Do you know? Precious, king. Pardon? Material items. You're getting closer. Yeah. High priest. Symbol of the liturgy. Closer. That's it. They're submitting to him. Gold. They're giving gold to him. Right? They're kings. And they're giving gold to him. When, do you, when does the king give gold to somebody else? Usually when you've been conquered, you give your gold. Why? Because you want to save your life. Get it? Okay. Frankincense and myrrh. Why, is he, why are they giving him frankincense and myrrh? It's kind of strange, isn't it? I mean, of all the things they could have got, given him, give him spices. I mean, we're talking about a baby here, all right? It's not like the baby Jesus is going to eat those things. Why did they give frankincense and myrrh? Reason? Frankincense and myrrh were known to be used in sorcery. So they're giving up their magic, their magis. They consult the stars. Okay? They're detaching themselves. Why? Because they don't need now to look at the stars anymore. They found the star. The only one they can look at. But do you notice how all that happened in a very secret way? Huh? This is how the liturgy works. Unnoticed. The, the Bethlehem, the cave is so important because, specifically because it tells us what goes on during the Mass. Outwardly, you see nothing. What do you see? You see a shepherd. Well, a man that looks like a shepherd. St. Joseph. And, you know, he's not really... Altogether, is he? I mean, his wife gave birth in a cave where cows are there. He's away from home. Then there is this woman, and there's a child, and some uh, shepherds. Well, what does it look like outwardly? Is that the palace of a great king? Think about those magis. Those are big guys. I mean, you know, you know, they're big elephants. I mean, they're, they're, they're up there. CIOs and CTOs and whatnot, right? Flying in jets and all that good stuff. And that's the life they lead. Okay, camels versus jets, but who cares? It's the same deal, right? And, and it's, like, it's like these guys showing up at, I don't know, McDonald. The stars stopped over McDonald. I'm not saying go eat at McDonald. Don't eat at McDonald. It's junk. But I'm just giving you an idea. The contrast. You get it? And they're getting in there, and then they see this kid in a cow's manger, and they fall 
at their knees, and they give this kid and his mom, looked like a you know, 16-year-old girl, frankincense, myrrh, and gold. They give their stuff away. Now, imagine you were one of the servants going with them. What would you think? They're gone off the deep end. Why? Because you see nothing. Do you get it? You, with your eyes, you see nothing. There is nothing fancy. There's nothing powerful. There's nothing strong. There, there's nothing. How is it different from the liturgy? Tell me. You come in, what do you see? People like you and me. You know? And then you have the priest. And then what's going on? You see nothing. Hmm? But, if you open your eyes, ah, if you but open your eyes, it's a different story. Okay. So, after we see these men who are all wailing over her because of the economy, right? They've been hit economically. And, uh, of course, they are seeing what happened to her. If it happens to her, it's going to happen to them. There is such thing as being sad about someone suffering in hell. You understand that? In hell, you can be sad about somebody suffering. Doesn't sound contradictory? Doesn't sound strange? Sounds almost like having showing mercy now or pity, right? How could you show mercy or pity in hell? You can't. So how come you be sad for someone suffering? Only one good reason. Because you're realizing that if this guy is suffering, your pain in hell is increasing. There is such thing as self-serving pity. That's what you have here. That's what they're wailing. It's self-serving. They know their turn is coming. Okay? You know, some people have this kind of prayer. Somebody's house is destroyed, and their house is safe. Thank God it's not my house. Okay? If you're really realistic, this is, this is the tendency we have. It's normal. You're happy, it's not your house. I completely understand that, right? But we should also at least say, Lord, well, yeah, that's what you're dealing with. Pity is not something we fabricate. We don't have natural pity. Okay? Because of our broken nature, we produce um, you know, egotism, we produce uh, selfishness, we produce love of self, galore. Pity? No. Mercy? No. Love of neighbor? No. Those are only the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Do you understand? Not one single good action we do come from us. It is all through the Holy Spirit and our guardian angel. That's it. This is reality. And that means we should not feel terrible because it's like this. That would be selfish. We should have an understanding of why our fellow human beings act the way they do. That's what it means. You know, I'm never surprised when somebody does an evil thing. Our fallen nature leads us to do evil things. I always rejoice when I see someone doing something good. 
I don't take that for granted. I never take that for granted. If I'm walking somewhere and somebody opens the door for me, I give glory to God. That means there is hope on this earth. Somebody did something good. I don't take that for granted. I don't assume it's natural. I don't assume it's easy. I don't think it's simple. And I don't think it's worth nothing. It's worth the world. Somebody did a good act. That shows the action of the Holy Spirit. You understand? God shows us so much. He gives us so much during our day. But we take so much for granted. Because of the hardness of our heart. We just do. We're breathing without a problem. We're sitting without a problem. We're standing. We're walking. We're talking. We can take care of ourselves. We can come and go. We live in peace. We have clothes. We have food. We have a place to sleep. We have a place to call home. There are people we can call. There's someone we can talk to. There's at least one person in our day that can say good morning. We take all that for granted. And the thought never crosses our mind to say, thank you, Jesus. But as soon as we're hit by a sickness, as soon as we hurt our finger, as soon as the weather is wrong, or it's too humid, or too hot, or too cold, or too dry, or the AC is not working, or the car is not working, why me, Lord? Why did you do that to me? I don't deserve this. That's what he has to deal with every day. Every day. And we take that for granted, that he should deal with that every day. And he does. And he loves us unconditionally. You understand? I mean, we cannot understand why he loves us. I, that doesn't make any sense. Right? I mean, if I was him, I would not love me. I mean, I wouldn't. I don't get why he loves me. It doesn't make any sense to me. I tell him. It makes no sense. But I believe him on his word. Why? He's on the cross. That's why. He didn't have to do it. I can't give him anything. He did it. Okay, there's a part of me that makes no sense. But I have to believe because of his action. So I believe. I'm a speck of dust, as Father Korapi used to say. But God loves the speck of dust. Go figure. Okay? I'm not saying any of this to put you down. I'm saying this to fill you with hope. That despite our weaknesses and our difficulties and our problems and all the things that we do wrong throughout the day, God still loves us. And He calls us to be His children. What we can do if nothing else, is to have at least the desire to love the liturgy because it is His song of love for us. It's His bouquet of flower that He gives us every time He sees us. It's His invitation to a wedding. It's His Christmas gift. That's what the liturgy is. It is the one and only and unique, true Christmas gift. All right, so... 
once we see that um, the, these people are wailing over her, we are called to rejoice. This is important. When God calls us to rejoice, we have to rejoice. What does it mean to rejoice then? Huh. How do you order somebody to rejoice? Rejoice! Oh, okay, How do, what does that mean? Rejoice over her. Okay. Great. Are we done then? I rejoice for five minutes. Is that enough? How do you rejoice? What is rejoicing? What is rejoicing? Does it mean you're just, you know, jumping up and down like Tigger? Non-stop? Is that rejoicing? We confuse rejoicing with um, giggling, laughing, uh, being in a, in, a, in a high. Rejoicing is any, none of that. Right? To re, re, rejoicing is actually a fruit of hope. You can't rejoice unless you're hopeful. Hopeful. Okay? Rejoicing is seeing the good in others. Rejoicing is seeing the good in the world. That's how you rejoice. And you rejoice both ways. You rejoice when God's enemies are put aside. That's a source of rejoicing. Yeah. And you rejoice when God's enemies have become His friends. You rejoice even more. But if you don't have hope, let me put it to you in parochial terms. You read the news and you purposely look for the bad things that happened today. And you go tell your friends all the bad things that happened today. Um, good luck rejoicing. You meet somebody and you're watching for his or her weaknesses. And then you go and tell somebody about the weaknesses of that person. You can't rejoice. Hmm? You're overly hard on yourself. You can't allow yourself to make any mistake. There's no space for mistake in your life. You're a tyrant when it comes to yourself. Why? Because you're a god to yourself. You worship at your own altar. Good luck rejoicing. You can't. You know how, how you can find somebody who can rejoice? I'll tell you, it's, it's sort of a litmus test to me. You put a little bunch of kids, you know, five, six, seven, and they're playing Duck, Duck, Goose. I suppose all of you know how to play Duck, Duck, Goose. And you look at those kids, and you think to yourself, huh, I'm going to go play with them. If you can't do that spontaneously, even if you don't do it, but it's just the thought of playing with them, you need to work at rejoicing. You're too serious. A little bit on the stuffy side. And there's no stuffiness in heaven. When I was up in Oklahoma, there is an abbey that came from France, from Fontainebleau. And these, this is a Benedictine abbey, and their call from the Pope is to preserve the uh, Tridentine liturgy and the Gregorian chants. So when you go celebrate the Mass with them, you're celebrating the Tridentine liturgy, and the Gregorian chant, and they're very poised monks, all of them, during the liturgy. 
At one point they were visiting, they came, and they're in full habits. All of them are in full habits. So they come to visit some friends we have, the wheelers, who are up there. And the abbot sees the trampoline. And he's jumping, full habit, with the two kids on a trampoline. That's rejoicing. You understand? There is an element of not taking ourselves too seriously and enjoying these moments that God puts before us. It's like God is saying, come play with me. What? I'm going to play with you? Oh, no, 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 no. I can't. You think, you think, huh? You think maybe, maybe that's too much. How can Jesus say, come play with me? Well, if you have a problem with this, you don't have a problem with me. You have a problem with St. Anthony of Padua. Because the Lord Jesus Christ, God Almighty Himself, appeared to St. Anthony of Padua as a four-year-old four kid. Why would He do that? Think about that for a second. That's why we have the statue of St. Anthony holding the baby Jesus. It's because he appeared to him just like that. And when he appeared to him like that, he wasn't standing in front of him holding a scepter and telling him, Anthony, kneel before, him, before me. He didn't come to do that. He was a kid. Jesus enjoyed being a kid. Do you? Remember when he said, unless you make it to have you be like kids? Remember that part? The kid part? Okay. No kid part, no rejoicing. Stuffy part? Work to do. All right. So we, we are called to rejoice because she's thrown down with violence and she will be found no more. Right? And so, when the temple was destroyed, the temple of Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple will not be rebuilt again. Period. Okay? Regardless of what some might say. Because it, is, it was the center of the old covenant, and now it's gone. Now the sound of harpers and minstrels of flute players and trumpeteers shall be heard in thee no more. Harpers, minstrels, flute, and trumpeteers. What are those part of? The choir. Exactly. The liturgy will not be heard in you no more. Understand? That's what this means. The, the sound of the millstone shall be heard in thee no more. The millstone, because of its grinding and quiet um, uh, appearance, was always, represent, was always a symbol of the universe, the, the stable universe. Okay? Always used in, in, in the ancient world as a, as a symbol of the universe being stable. And the fact that the millstone is not going to be heard in you no more means what? This universe has passed. So this age is coming to an end. Because once the liturgy ceases, once the liturgy of the old covenant ceases, that ancient, that old age comes to an end. The light of a lamp shall shine in thee no more. Where did the light of the lamp shine? Inside the holy of holy. Inside of the holy, I'm sorry. Right? So, and then in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints. And you know, from the Lord Himself, right, that this was Jerusalem. The blood of the prophets were never found in Rome. 
Okay? And all who have been slain on earth. So, overall in this chapter, we see the, what? The liturgical judgment having taken place. Physically, nothing has happened. Everything's still standing. But it's spoken of in the past because it has already taken place in heaven. And now, in the next chapter, in chapter 19, we will see how this will actually take place physically after what? The only three hallelujahs we will hear in the entire book of Revelation. Three hallelujahs, and then the Lord will come on His white horse, and the end follows. The end of that age, right? not the end of the world. Okay, a couple more notes I'd like to share with you, which I thought was uh, interesting. First, uh, a reason why she's being judged is because she committed harlotry, which is with those merchants, meaning what? Meaning that she favored trade over the Lord. A couple, um, couple of notes for you. Uh, John chapter 2, do you remember that? John chapter 2, verse 13 through 22, You have made of my father's house a house of trade. In the, in the, in the Revised Standard Version, Catholic Edition, it's the house of trade. Why? Because the, the high priest, Ananias, at the time, owed pretty much all the market. And when pilgrims would come, they would find what they need to buy where? In the court of the Gentiles. So a Gentile who's supposed to go there and worship God would be standing among the pigeons and the sheep and the cow and all the other animals. What do you think they were trying to tell the, the Gentiles? You get it? That's what provoked Jesus' ire. You made of the house of my father a house of trade. Meaning what? Meaning, it was okay for you, it was okay for you to treat the Gentile coming to worship my father as an animal, so that you can make a buck. That's what provoked his anger. Um, you know, there is a reference in the book of Josephus, I told you about him, he was the historian, and he, he states that Ananias... Uh, was the great procurer of money. In particular, the court of the Gentiles appeared to have been the scene of a flourishing trade in animal sacrifice, perhaps supported by the high priestly family. Um, we've talked about the physical versus spiritual separation. Um, interestingly, we, can, um, we see that... Uh, um, St. Uh, Augustine says that to fly out of the midst to fly out of the midst of Babylon should be understood spiritually in this sense that by going forward in the living God by the steps of faith we must flee out of the city of this world which is altogether a society of ungodly angels and people so his point is when we are effectively living a life of faith when we are living a life centered around the liturgy the, the action of the sacrament on our lives pull us out of this world and give us the strength we need to be true witnesses in the world. There's no sense of us separating ourselves from this city to go live in a small town 
and being called to the liturgy. We've accomplished nothing. Or very little. The other interesting thing is that um, you notice the, the, the Lord is calling us to do something. Get out of, detach yourself from. What is that? That is work. That is work. And we are to do that constantly, aren't we? We can't just do it for five minutes and stop. We can't do it for one day and stop. Because as soon as we stop, guess what? We don't stop. We move backward. We're attracted. Okay? And that established the basis for this notion that there is no such thing as final perseverance, meaning keeping the faith until the moment of death without persevering and asking for it. And in a real sense, final perseverance is obtained when we persevere in asking for it. So we constantly have to ask, God, grant me to die faithfully. And we do that, for instance, when we say the rosary. right? Pray for us now and at the hour of our death. So, um, this establishes this realistic notion that we are constantly detaching ourselves, detaching ourselves from Babylon. We're constantly working on this. We can't stop. It's the work of a lifetime. And a work of a lifetime does not happen unless it is rooted in love. Unless we have a true devotion and love for the Lord and His church, we're not going to be able to persevere. Unless in our heart of hearts, we really think about God, we think about the church, we love God, we love the church, we want to be Catholic, we are proud to be Catholic, we want to stay Catholic and live a Catholic faith, we're not going to persevere. Because we only do the things that we love, don't we? We can do something for money for 10 years. Well, maybe. Those of you who have been in these situations, who are maybe older, who've worked at a job they hated, but was a good pay, know what I'm talking about. It's extremely hard. And you don't keep at it forever. Nothing will keep you doing something that you hate. All the more something spiritual. So we have to foster a true love and devotion to Jesus. How do we do that? The cross. Every day, every day, every day, we should at least think of Jesus on the cross. At least once. Because this inflames our heart to love Him more. He died for me. He died for me. And if this doesn't work, think of hell. And I'm serious. It's a great way of helping you out of tricky situations. If you're facing a really big temptation, the first thing you think of is, Jesus died for me, and if I do this, I am going now to put a nail through his hands. That's what I'm doing. But if this is not strong enough to stop you, think of hell. That doesn't come from me, by the way. St. John of Avila. He's the one who gave that uh, advice. All right. Her sins have heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Um, this prophecy was fulfilled within the first century, as St. Paul observed. This is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. 1 Thess 2, 15, 16. 
They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles, that they, that they might be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. He's talking about his own people, the Jews. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. So he knew. Now I'm not saying this because I, it's a ding against the Jews. Right? What's it, how's it going to help us reach heaven? I'm saying this because those same words could be applied to us today. Okay? God shows no partiality. In front of him there are no Jews, no Christian, no Chinese. It doesn't matter. There's no partiality. So the same calling of holiness that has happened back then happens today. And we have to respond in exactly the same way. Um, what we have here effectively when, when it comes to selling and buying is this notion that um, nations who have entered into a covenant betrays the Lord and get into consumerism, self-indulgence, and greed for possessions, which are clearly features of our time and were denounced by Pope Pius XI when he said that the disease of the modern age and the main source of the evils we all deplore, the main source of the evils we all deplore, is that lack of reflection, lack of reflection, that continuous and quite feverish pursuit of external things, that immoderate desire for wealth and pleasure, which gradually causes the heart to lose sight of its nobler ideals, drowning them in a sea of impermanent earthly things and preventing them from contemplating higher eternal things. St. Pius XII once declared, the sin of the century is the loss of the sense of sin. So we are living in a society that wants you to consume more, buy more, make more money all the time heartlessly, without thinking about it, without making sure you have your priorities in tow. Be focused on money. Be focused on buying. Be focused on things. Judge yourself by what you wear, what you own, what you drive. On and on and on and on. How you look. This and that and the other. And that drives us to be hooked to Babylon. And you can see how somebody who is hooked on those things cannot be hooked on the liturgy. Cannot be truly a lover of the liturgy. A woman, for instance, who has an inveterate love for, an uncontrolled love for shopping, will not love the liturgy. Simple. A man who loves to play games for eight hours straight is not going to love the liturgy. Simple. We know where our heart is. So understand that all those activities we get ourselves into either are fostering love of God or love of man. Those are moral choices we're making. They're not free. Again, we'd love to be teenagers. We'd love to be in a constant mid, mid-age, mid-life, whatever, crisis. Because then I don't have to think. I just do what I feel like doing. What a great feeling. What a great feeling. Most people go to hell singing. That's how it is. 
the reality is every action we do has an associated cost. Realize that. And ask yourself, today, where am I going? In the season of Advent, those of you who are Maronite, you're now in a season of Advent. We're already preparing for Christmas. We're coming, we're preparing for the birth of Christ. Where am I going with my life? What am I doing? What is really important? Have I got my priorities set straight? Am I detaching myself from Babylon? Or am I getting deeper into it? Am I doing an examination of conscience? Am I asking my guardian angel to help me? To reflect on those things daily. To look at my life. And help me see in all those little decisions I'm making, which way am I going? Not what I'm saying, what I'm doing. That's the calling of Christians. And as we become truly Catholic, and as we live the life of the church, we change the world without even knowing it. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.